You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. He is moving tape. now to Paris with his family. <laughs> he's writing a uh, biography on Lafayette. Really? First, first real, like, good, comprehensive, like, full-life biography of Lafayette. That's interesting. And so in order to, like, truly get to the uh, first-hand archives... He, they're moving there for six months or something like that. <laughs> Packed he, up from Madison, Wisconsin. I bet he lives there for like f- years <laughs> or forever. Like Bill Bryson goes and visits England and never comes back. Mm-hmm. <sighs> nice. Okay, Facebook Live. Okay. Not even on camera. The tragedy. Yeah, you definitely want more of you. Less of me. Don't. I don't, though. (laughs) I know. I'm always. eh, That's good. That's good enough. Good enough. Surprise! We'll make sure uh, Dakota is much better looking than both of us. (laughs) I know. He's got the most prominent. (laughs) He's got the most prominent part. Um, okay, so, I'm not going to play the intro music, uh, because this is a bonus episode. There's no need for pretense (laughs) and showmanship on a bonus episode. Uh, so, obviously, my name is Chris Spangle, and this is We Are Libertarians, and, uh, this is Matt Whitliff. Hello, how are you? Doing well. Longtime contributor. Many of you are going, it's not even six o'clock yet. Why are you live streaming? <laughs> uh, there's going to be two episodes tonight. The first is going to be a bonus episode, and then uh, Dakota Davis will join us at seven, and we will be uh, talking about Jordan Peterson and finding meaning in life and uh, how to discover your values. So, uh, two very heady topics tonight. So, what's the, what's the point of this one? So, what, like a year ago? Maybe more. (laughs) Maybe more. uh, I said to Matt and then Greg, uh, but now it's just Matt and I. (laughs) Um, So, uh, someone says, the dude in red should be in Congress. Uh, Oh, well, I I only got 4.2%, so you could have done more work for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Andy Andy Horning strategy. (laughs) Blame Blame the listener. No, that that his strategy is blame the voters. Oh, that's right. This is just you know. Okay, here we go. Oh, that's uh, Jeremiah said that. Oh well, thank you, Jeremiah. Um, so anyway. Jeremiah, future congressman. I yes, right future there, uh, county councilor, future Mrs. Sarah Potter. Um, <laughs> so let me turn this off so we don't hear us, so I can see the comments. Um, so anyways, uh, jump in as well. So a year ago or so. 
we start. I said, you know what I'd love to do is a series of podcasts called The Find, where basically we... Uh, n- no, Jared, the problem is that I can't see on um, one screen who's actually commenting, so... Uh, that's why I, I didn't know who said it. It's like a fun little game. I can yell <laughs> indiscriminately without bias. Um, so I want, I said to him, uh, I, I said, did, I said, uh, I said, uh, I sound like, um, Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, I say, I say, I say, uh, I want to do a series of wall defined where we basically give people in a short chunk of time. Uh, history and, and basically like defined things. What does libertarian mean? What is the history of libertarian? What does conservative mean? What are the different strands of liberalism and progressivism? Uh, so we're going to do that. This is the first episode of that. But before we go and do those on the air and actually like give the definitions and declare things, I wanted to do a rough draft. So Matt and I talked the other day about. Um, I hesitated on your name because in my mind I almost said Harry. <laughs> I don't know why like I'm used to having Harry like next to me. Uh even though it's been a month. So before we do that, I want to do a rough draft of the episodes because I want your feedback on them. Uh just you Patreon people, so this is a bonus for just uh you guys who donate five dollars, ten dollars, twenty five, a hundred dollars a month. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get to participate in this process. Uh, so I would love to have your feedback. Email me at editor at wearelibertarians.com. I'll forward that on to Matt. Uh, you can make comments about it uh, in the in the Dear Leaders Court for those of you who are $10 and above. If, uh, if you're not, uh, or if you want to make your friends jealous, go in the Facebook group, <laughs> uh, the big group, and say, I heard on this bonus episode this thing, and I'd like to talk about this. Oh, you don't know what I'm talking about? I guess you should be a patron. Shame your friends. That's what I'm saying. So I really want to lay a lot of this information out and then get some perspective from you guys, uh, some critique. And this is by no means comprehensive. So we were talking about uh, a lot of this. And a lot of it is like in Jonah Goldberg's book, uh, The... Uh, the Suicide of the West, great book, but it's like 900 pages. Uh, Cato has something similar, and it's thirty hour, 30 hour audiobook. Um, I, th- I forget, I think it's like Cato University. I'll have to look it up. Uh, it's really good. I want to say good, uh, but it's very long. Um, uh, you know, you could read Bernard Russell's uh, History of Western Philosophy. Um, Oh, or if you want to go down to the common man, uh, Will Durant's uh, books on philosophy. Um, I am looking for this, so please apologize, because I think if you're if you if you enjoy this, you're going to like learning about liberty by Cato University on Audible. Uh, I I think part of what this part of what this sprang out of was the early seeds of what we're suffering right now was that. People are arguing, and they don't have common definitions of anything. Mm-hmm. I would say that in, in Facebook arguments or arguments in the media or in general, people aren't, there isn't an umpire. Like, yeah. everything's very chaotic. And so yeah. in terms of having political conversations, nobody's working off of a standard definition. Yep. Yep. All definitely. Right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, definitely That's agree. Okay. <laughs> um, 
I think we'll touch on some of that in the later episode tonight, I would yeah. imagine, right? But it's, um, you know, the the era that we live in today, social, me- social media is fantastic for communication and bringing people together in ways that we've never been able to be brought together before, but there is no police. Right. Do we want police of that? Probably not, but at right. the same time, we're in this weird transition between institution and anarchy right which you know makes all of this discussion kind of fun and relevant right (laughs) yeah the we're under we're in the middle of a shift and so what a lot of tonight's uh i want to say well defined but i think it's just defined i think uh defined uh, the history of libertarian thought part one is how i would put it um it's a shift from essentially a world where rulers exist to individuals, you know. And I think we're still we still have these fights all the time. Um, you know, I was talking to someone about communion. Okay, this is really a weird mm-hmm. discussion, but she's Catholic and I'm not. All right. Yeah. And I said uh, I am I am the type of person who doesn't believe that uh, that. The worthiness of a person to take communion is between them and God, mm-hmm. and you're saying the church makes that determination. Why would I add a third party in? And so it got me thinking about the role of the Catholic Church in in our history, in our lives, in the history of Christianity, and in the West, where you had that third party who had declared themselves the arbiter of who was a Christian, and therefore yeah. who could take communion, for instance, yeah. and then... You know, Protestantism and and um, uh, Martin Luther comes along and says, "No, these people shouldn't have any authority over you. God is the only authority." And we had a similar change in government yep. around the Enlightenment, where it went from the rule of kings and um, basically a big tribe to governments opening up and recognizing that the individual is the supreme authority. And we're still not all the way there. <laughs> if you look at uh, the argument over immigration, for instance, while pff, the law is supreme, the government said that this is the law. Okay, but the law is immoral, and these are human beings. That's the law. Do you not like the law? <laughs> no, I don't like the law. That's yeah. uh, why I'm a libertarian. I don't believe that the law is always right or always supreme. So we'll talk about more more about that tomorrow. But... um. That's a perfect segue, though. Yeah. Right? So Catholicism, Protestantism, the Enlightenment, that, that gets us right to where we want to start with, uh, you know, we can start with Henry VIII, really. Okay. Um, um, I'm going I'm to just hop all the way back, because you have uh, prepared, and, and I will put this in uh, the show notes on the Patreon post, so you can kind of see. I don't know if it'll translate in the RSS feed, but hopefully it does. Uh, maybe we'll upload uh, yeah, the show notes a PDF to the, or yeah, up into the, the Facebook group. So, point number one, getting a view to libertarianism requires a review of classical political thought. So, you really can't talk about the origins of libertarian thought without going back, and this is really what I have found recently, that's why I'm reading you know, Will Durant's mm-hmm. book about philosophy and Bernard... Uh, what, uh, Bertrand Russell's Bertrand Russell, yeah. book uh, on the history of philosophy, because you can't really understand modern philosophy without starting with Pythagoras and uh, Plato and and Aristotle. 
you have to go all the way back. You have to uh, go centuries, even millennia of organized society being ruled by despotism or monarchism with minor exceptions. And um, as as you put in your book, in your uh, note here, <laughs> I said book accidentally. Uh, notably, trials of democracy in ancient Greece and republicanism in Rome, birth of political philosophy with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Why were Greece and Rome so special? Well, they were they were the exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, I mean, as as we talked about, you just said right there for for the better part of millennia, right? You either had incredibly disorganized, uh, you know, hunter gatherer tribal societies, whatever, with with limited hierarchy and structure, um, or you had more or less, you know, kingdoms, empires, you know, some sort of authoritarian despot you know, sitting on, on top of ruling things. Right. So, I mean, the emergence of, um, trials in democracy, some form of democracy are, you know, at least in the historical record are, are few and far between. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, we will, we would do a disservice and it's way beyond the scope of anything. We can try to encapsulate every little ounce of where that may have happened in history. But I mean, let's face it, it's Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome. Right. And so, um, you know, the Greeks toyed with, um, you know, forms of democracy, uh, later, you know, the famously the Roman Republic before, uh, that devolved into, you know, Caesar. Yeah. The, uh, was it storm before the storm yeah. by Mike Duncan? We were talking about the great revolutions podcast, history of Rome podcast. He wrote a book about the end of the Roman Republic, which I highly recommend. Yeah. And, and the, Democratic experience and the Roman experience really shaped our own founding here in America. You know, for instance, the way that in Rome the Republic was set up, you had the Senate, which was all the nobility, and then you had eventually the, um, I want to say Agrippa, but that's not right. The uh, he's one of the emperors. Yeah, I the, don't remember the, the name of the the other. Court the agrarian. Uh, the uh, the uh, man. I'm blanking on it. But anyways, it was it was the people's house essentially, and then you had the two. Then you had the consuls, and eventually all of it kept getting perverted and perverted because people kept violating most maiorium the the traditional norms of Roman society and politics and. Class struggles began, and then eventually it all just starts blowing up. And so what the American founders tried to do was take that and learn from Grecian democracy and its breakdown, Roman democracy and its breakdown, um, the development of of freedom and liberty through John Locke and, and others in the, the Scottish Enlightenment, and try and apply that to a governmental system, and that's how you end up with the American Revolution. Um, so those, what came before those was tribal rule Mm -hmm. by and large. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, basically one person at the, at the top using violence to maintain their position more or less for the whole of human history. Yeah. More or less, more or less. And, and so, um, you know, I think to limit this, you know, the scope of conversation, you know, really, American political history is obviously a direct antecedent of, of European, Western European political history, right? And and political history necessitates the fact that there's, you know, actually politics going on, right? right. That there is some 
uh, form or structure outside of the rule of one, right? And so the um, you know the conquest of uh, England um, in in the eleventh uh, century with you know William and the setting up of you know what essentially became the English kingdom um, is where a lot of this starts, right? And you know I think one of the best events that you know in in the history of at least. Um, you know, individualism uh, or the or the fight against the king, if you will, or limiting the king's authority is the Magna Carta, right? Which which comes along a couple centuries later. Right. Uh, there's a a loose structure of of um, you know checks against the king through through council through um, you know uh, the fact that there are people who are uh, have some sort of voice or say in terms of limiting the king's power and and in particular through taxes most most importantly like through taxes right and so um that lead up takes us up into um henry the eighth you know and and his then separation from the catholic church right which begins to throw everything in england into a bit of turmoil uh he dies without having you know a lot of heirs uh, there's some some succession issues. Well, he kept murdering anyone that wouldn't give him an heir. Yeah, so. well, yeah, a lot of child still stillborn <laughs> children probably had some some you know issues with his health, <laughs> and uh, and so there's um, Edward the sixth, I believe, who you know becomes the boy king. He can't rule on his own. He dies before he really comes of age, and um, you know the next in line is Elizabeth. Right. Uh, well, there's a couple in between, but essentially, eventually, it gets to Elizabeth the first. Right. There's, there's, I think, two in between. But yeah, Mary, um, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a problem with Elizabeth being, and then you know, this yes. whole Catholic Protestant thing really took Correct. off. Correct. And and that you know, and, and then she's the Virgin Queen for 40, 40, 45 years, right, and has no heirs. Right. And so when she dies, there's another kind of succession challenge, and and it, it defers to Mary of of Scotland, who wants to return Catholicism after a long period of Anglicanism, Anglicanism, the Church of England, um, and all of this essentially leads up to a new English civil war in the 1650s because the return of Charles the first, I think, uh, later as a you know a Scotsman, uh, as a Catholic. Um, you know that that has riled up the folks who um, you know enjoyed Elizabeth's uh, willingness to defer to Parliament at this point. Parliament right. now exists, um, and Charles is like, "I'm not going to call Parliament." <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so we have the English Civil War that begins to break out in the sixteen, the mid 1600s. Um, you know, Oliver Cromwell, all of the Roundheads and the Cavaliers, all that. D- stuff. Explain divine right of kings, because that's a phrase that I've heard a lot around the mid 1600s. Sure. So the divine right of kings basically is the fact, the the notion that kings inherit their authority uh, through God, right? right. That they are uh, God's agents on earth uh, to uh, rule over God's people. And um, they are their authority is is derived through God and not through the people that right. they rule. And and, and the Catholic split basically. King Henry the Eighth essentially says, "I am I am the rightful king. I can do what I want. I'm I'm God's authority on earth. 
over my dominion, mm-hmm. and the Catholic Church is a corrupt institution that is getting in my way. Of getting divorced. <laughs> because he wanted to basically eject his first wife, uh, a Spanish queen, and the for Anne Boleyn, and then she couldn't produce heirs, so he kicks her to the curb. Uh, and that split is incredibly important because, you know, obviously the Catholic Church develops over time, becomes immensely powerful. Uh, you have the Crusades launched uh, over the course of many different periods. I mean, the, the church was immensely powerful. So the the idea that that King Henry VIII is splitting from the church is the thing about the Catholic Church, especially in this period, mm-hmm. uh, it it carried people through the Dark Ages. You know, you could say, you can look at it and you can certainly say that it caused a lot of misery, but it did like any government. <laughs> I mean, and it was yeah. a government in many ways, but it traces its founding back to, you know, on this rock I will found my church when Jesus says to Peter, who mm-hmm. becomes the first bishop of Rome, the first pope, and then from there, it's off to the races. Constantinople is Constantine. Uh, Con- yeah. Constantine. <laughs> well, doesn't he change it from Istanbul? Constantin- yeah, this, the city is Constantinople. Right. Constantine yeah. basically yeah. founds the city, takes over the church, and that's yeah. where the church merges with government. And uh, that, that's like what? 532 Five, maybe? Yeah, so that's 500. 526, something like that. So we're now fast-forwarding a 1,000 years where the church is really the big institution that is governing everything. And, and King Henry VIII says... No more. I, the king, the government, am the authority, and the church in my dominion must submit to me. And that is really a foundational moment. And that split between Protestants and Catholics really sets the stage for the next, for, for wars over the next few hundred years. And through war, I mean, war just robs a society of so many different things. And it, I think it helps accelerate the notion of freedom because people are just tired of being jerked around by these dumbasses who are sending them to war all the yeah. time over their own political power and worse here suffering. Can't we do something about this? Right, right. Yeah, and 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 so the 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 fight against then checking the king's power, right, and questioning the divine right of kings, um, you know, becomes acceptable, mm. right? Uh, at, at this time and and you know I think a variety of factors the printing press the Protestant revolution you know the, the having enough people not happy with the the Protestant versus Catholic fight or or you know what what have you from uh, or d- not even believing that the rightful heir to the throne got the you know uh, was placed on the throne all those types of factors come together leads the battle um you know you've got a, a series of back and forth through the late 1600s um eventually the the crown is restored um however it's restored with with some significant checks right okay and and um this is where i think the you know modern political um you know modern political divisions really you know spring from this moment in my opinion what right? what time the, period the, the left and the right the, the late 1600s probably uh, with the establishment of the uh, English Bill of Rights in 1689, right? Because right? that allows the the king and the parliament to coexist with rights guaranteed to the people, uh, powers of the king checked by parliament. Um, so you now have a a true what becomes the left right divide of or conservative more importantly probably conservatism versus liberalism, right? Which is 
conservatism supporting, um, you know, the, the institutions, in, in particular the institutions of the monarchy, right? And and liberalism supporting, um, you know, more power to directly in the hands of the people, right? Right. And so you uh, you talk about the restoration followed by the interregnum period with stronger parliament. Yeah, the interregnum was was right before the the you know the reestablishment of the crown that we just talked about, right? So the restoration uh, was was um, the period right around the English Civil War, right? And then when Oliver Cromwell and and the Roundheads win, there is a period called the interregnum. Um, uh, there's another name for it as well, but that's basically the period where there there is no king, right? Um, Cromwell uh, and Parliament rule England uh, on the you know without and the wasn't Cromwell basically a theocratic dictator? Uh, more or less, yeah. yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, so as you, with you anyone think- in history, right? And in, in, in the context of the times, right? I mean, you know, bumping up bumping up against the king and the establishment that way. I mean, there's certainly some. Um, power to the people if you will you know not to overuse right. a term right that Cromwell absolutely supported but i mean everybody was a theocrat right at that time yeah right yeah i mean but he there was a period of terror where he was basically rooting out anyone who was catholic and it was uh you know you you hid your catholicism and mm-hmm. if they were found out then you were tortured i mean he was you, so I think in the mind of people, you hear, "Oh, good, there was no king during that period. It was yeah. it was not uh, a moment for liberty to spread. It was really a moment of great terror for for many in England." But that ends up being followed by the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights of 1689. So why is the Glorious Revolution important? So the Glorious Revolution uh, comes with the the overthrow of King James of England and then a unity um, a, a unification of the English parliamentarians with support from the Dutch William of Orange comes uh, with with money and, and and troops and they are able to come in and um, you know retake England from uh, King James and then establish uh, William the third with um, Mary. Now, mm-hmm. College William of Mary, right? Uh, in in sixteen eighty eight, I believe, right? And then following that, kind of with the, you know, with that came the Bill of Rights, which basically was the the understanding that okay, the the parliamentarians um, with the power from the you know the the Dutch, you know, will support this new establishment of of William and Mary, provided they also um, will will give this Bill of Rights. At the same time, so it's easy to look at the 1500s and 1600s, and I don't know if you don't really study any of this in your mind. All of English and European history, it all kinds, of, it all kind of melds together. You're like, you know, Constantine from 1563. It's like, oh no, 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 he was 500 <laughs> right. BC, like AD. Uh, so, but this is an incredible moment in. Uh, in human history in the 15 and 1600s where you have all this massive change very quickly. And and I think we could learn a lot from it, to be honest, because you have these big events that we look back as his, as historic, and you have this new development in the printing press that is rapidly changing the way that people think and learn and spread ideas. All of a sudden, you don't have to be a monk carrying a piece of information you know, a thousand miles on donkey back in a very <laughs> slow manner, you now can be that monk carrying a 
basket full of papers who, who can then spread you know an order of magnitude of information and so you have you know luther especially built the reformation on the back of the printing press for instance translating the bible into german and putting out printed editions of the bible it completely cut off at the knees the entire idea that the church was the only uh, they were the only ones who could hold read interpret Mm-hmm. And and express what was in the Bible. Right now, your ordinary person could read the Bible for themselves. And once it was put out, you know, once Tyndall put it out in English and and Wycliffe, and then Martin Luther, who stood on their work, then you really start to see a, a complete radical change very quickly. And that's one of the important parts about this time period is that you have a lot of people who are building on each other's work very rapidly thanks to the printing press. So you end up having these conversations between all these different thinkers that really built the foundation of Western civilization because they were able to time travel their thought almost, yeah. you know, in a very easy way. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you know, people who were writing in the 1500s were being, you know, reinterpreted and rewritten about in the 17 and 1800s. So, and it's no different than today. Everything that we see going on in front of us is just a constant conversation, right? It's just everyone talking and building on each other's ideas and what if we try this? Uh, And information is moving very rapidly. And I imagine if you're just a regular person living in in 1683, you don't understand the historical significance of these things. You're just kind of like trying to survive and grow your potatoes, and then all of a sudden, oh, this glorious revolution. Okay, cool. What's that? All right, back to not dying of the (laughs) plague. You know, (laughs) so so I think sometimes we miss the historical consequence of of actions that are being made. I think right now we're in the middle of a period where there are things happening in technology that are so massive and leaps are happening so quickly that we're not even aware that 400 years people 400 years from now people will look back and go they didn't even have a clue that AI was completely changing their entire world right you know because we're so stuck in our uh, our backwards old ideas of we can't let these people past our borders <laughs> like borders may not exist in 200 years <laughs> yeah yeah who knows what yeah exactly yeah it is a side topic but i'm also fascinated and listened to one um interview podcast this morning on um you know uh, generational theory and cycles right. and things like that right and right. so you know that that kind of broad you know four generations of 20ish or so odd years each and you know these broad sweeping changes and repeats um right you know, we we are, if I if I recall correctly, we're we're probably right on the edge of one of those unravelings, right? So, yeah, and I um, think I think we're at a point where the city state is starting to unravel, and people are starting to, and this is a libertarian's dream, right? You you want it to be done orderly, but when we look at this unraveling of this political order, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't totally chaotic, but it also wasn't orderly and it wasn't peaceful. Uh, and I think we're going to experience something similar, um, but God forbid that it be, you know, nuclear war or germ yeah. warfare, because we have built the ability to t- to kill the entire human race uh, in the last hundred years. Over, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think we're in the great unraveling, overarching all of this of 
the city state. I think we're moving more towards a fulfillment of the individual being the ultimate authority and the individual controlling their destiny thanks to things like technology and these last vestiges of the city state, things like borders and all these different these are these are these are things we're holding on to that are getting in the way of actual freedom. Yeah. And you see that where you look at the conservatives of that time and you go why are you why are you supporting the people who torture other people and like mm-hmm. like medieval torture was terrible they would put you in <laughs> they would put you in the middle of fine ash and let you sit there in the hot sun and when you collapsed you inhaled all that ash and suffocated to death yeah. or they'd put you in a big pot and then just overfeed you so you shit into the big pot <laughs> and then maggots eat you to death like and it lasts days there's I a mean, lot of bad stuff yeah, yeah like yeah. It, well, that's not something i want to conserve yeah. okay so so i think there's uh, history really informs where we're at and it makes you freak out about the current situation a lot less because you really look at it and go 300 years ago we couldn't do this podcast uh, in fact we would be growing what we eat mm-hmm. so yeah um you know, as I posted at chrisspangle.com, there is a video called iToaster where this guy basically builds his own toaster and it takes years and it doesn't function, you know, but it's the, mir- <laughs> it's the miracle of capitalism. So the, the veins that we see are liberalism and conservative start to, to grow out of that rapid change and that, that rapid chaotic change starts to alter things in a very fundamental way. You fast forward to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, the development of the uh, scientific method. Yeah. Well, it was all happening at the same time. All at the same time. Yeah. And it's just an explosion of knowledge. Uh, so uh, you jump right so, into, uh, I, maybe we should talk about the Enlightenment I, a little bit. I think bit. the thinkers area, yeah, right? Like, so, right. you know, the, the 17th century, um, you get some of the, you know, early works that that kind of support and drive these thoughts and and you know some of them are are decidedly not remotely you know libertarian or liberal in their own right but they put forth certain ideas that that um set the foundation and and the groundwork right so now john locke is a mountain of a of a man in this in this uh, uh you know kind of changing the way politics is thought of right so his treatises on government in, in particular, a little bit less his essay on human understanding, and and many of his other works are are huge in terms of um, uh, inspiring others. You know, later Jefferson and you know the founding fathers of, the, of America and other you know liberals, which you know in the in the classical liberal stream base a lot of their thoughts around Locke because he says there's natural rights. Right, he right. supports contract theory, things that go beyond. Um, Certainly beyond the divine right of kings, you've got um, uh, John Milton and and Thomas Hobbes, right? And then one that's a little bit lesser known, um, you know, that I did some research on, right? But Al- Algernon Sidney, right? And his book, Discourses Concerning Government, is you know very libertarian, right? And <laughs> early proto-libertarian in in a lot of its thoughts of you know that that um, you know governments are you know if you you can. Uh, they're of the people, right? And if you don't like what the government is doing, then it's no longer of the people and you have the right to abolish it, right? right. Like directly taken into the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. right? Cool. And then obviously that leads to the American founding, all of this thought. The American founding, um, 
basically, as you, you write here, liberalism dominates American political thought in the revolution. Can you define liberalism as it existed in that time? Yeah, liberalism in that time was uh, probably at its most basic level, anti-monarchy, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, uh, you know, supporting of um, the fact that, you know, that there's a social contract and that governments exist because the people you know, uh, form the governments, right? Uh, the fact uh, some form of democracy, rep- representative government, um, you know, a free, free speech, civil, civil liberties, right? Uh, free speech, free press, freedom of religion, all of these things encompass what is considered, uh, liberalism or what we would today say cl- as classical liberalism. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think to a point, to a man, almost, I, I can't think of a single founding father who we would, you know, talk about as a founding father that was not a classical liberal. Sure. Right. Uh, I mean, even you know, take the two uh, extreme polar counterpoints in in the founding uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, for example. And I mean, even Hamilton, he's a liberal. Right. right. Uh, if you compare him to, you know, some random Brit, <laughs> he's absolutely a liberal. Sure. Right. So it's sort of what I always say to like anarcho-capitalists. It's like a, a modern constitutionalist, <laughs> yeah. like uh, Cleon Skousen, who wrote the Five Thousand Year Leap, who revered the Constitution. Like that guy's a libertarian by our standards, yeah. you know. Like just let them in the club. Like Should you don't be. have yeah. to, you know. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, but no, libertarianism to do. and classical liberalism is kind of the term. Can you define classical liberalism? Is it any different than that? That I hear people like Dave Rubin calling themselves classic liberals, but I've never understood that to be different than libertarianism. Yeah, I think Am I supporter wrong? of you know markets and individual rights is probably the you know quickest smallest synopsis of right. it, right? And um, so you know libertarianism uh, that word is largely first found in texts um, as you know almost as code. For a uh, for for a socialist anarchist essentially mm-hmm. right and and so the the term libertarianism um, you know has its roots later in the mid eighteen hundreds um, amongst people who are from a much different school of thought that that you know hasn't yet been born through the conversation that we've been at to, right. d- to date right um, and so libertarianism in the U S context again we'll get to this a little bit later right. Um, when it becomes more into the conversation and consciousness in the 50s and the 60s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, right? It is borrowing as much or more from the classical liberal tradition as it is from the roots of the libertarian tradition, which has its home in, in anarchism. So ironically, like the liberals kicked us out, so we took over libertarianism and kicked the social anarchists <laughs> out. Okay, got it. Something like that, yeah. It's it's all, all fun. Yeah, I heard... Uh, in a radio interview in the mid 40s and it might have been early 40s even uh where um hl mankin called himself a libertarian yeah which was which which he is he's more of a cynical asshole than a Uh, (laughs) libertarian but uh so and i think libertarian in the way like everybody's worried that conservatives or liberals or somebody's gonna come in and take over the term to me, the term libertarianism, the biggest danger to the term is that anybody who is anti-power 
mm-hmm. anybody who is anti-political power is, is libertarian. Like there, and I don't know if that makes total sense, but but you see people like the alt right. I'm libertarian. It's like no, you're just you. You are anti certain powers of the state. Yeah, and you are for certain forms of political power, but you're not totally libertarian in that you don't. Re- you may support. The concept of free markets, but you really are just like a fascist who, yeah. who who wants the current order to be brought down. So I really find in my discussions with a lot of people who call themselves libertarian but don't understand it, they're really just anti-power, mm-hmm. anti-current status quo. And I don't find that to be like that's a very populist point of view. Is I'm anti-status quo, so therefore I'm libertarian. And yeah, like, that's not how it works. I, I- I mean, I think that association is new. Um, you know, uh, libertarian is, is certainly not quite mainstream, but it's certainly far, far more mainstream than it was 15 years ago. Right. Or certainly 50 years ago, right? And so, um, though the pure, you know, kind of the anti-establishment folks or the misfits folks, if you will, right, um, I think throughout time have always tried to cling on to something to uh, at least semi-legitimize their their point. And I think, you know, we, we see that a little bit with, with what you're describing um, with kind of neo-fascist alt-rights with, right. with libertarianism. Because, you know, there are, there are some shared, there's some shared overlap and there's some shared history, um, you know, but uh, certainly far from what we would view as or want to own as libertarianism. <clears throat> so then we move on to the American founding and uh, the 18th century. You know, people like Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine with common sense and the rights of man, obviously the dec- <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence and then the Bill of Rights following it, two of the greatest declarations of human liberty, uh, along with the Magna Carta and uh, other documents. And then Montesquieu, the spirit of laws, as well. Can you explain who Montesquieu is? Yeah, so Montesquieu, so chronologically, Montesquieu, um, Rousseau, Voltaire, all French writers and French philosophers came, uh, well, were incredible. I mean, they were incredibly influential to Jefferson and a lot of the other founders, right? Um, And they all had their own little flavor, and, you know, and that all also led up to the French Revolution, um, which has its own. you know, kind of its own interesting uh, track and, and what that's done to human history uh, as well, a little bit out of the scope of the conversation, right? But Montesquieu's probably greatest work in, in light of this political history that we're discussing today is the spirit of laws. Um, he, he argues that, you know, you do need political institutions, um, but he was big on constitutional systems, separation of powers, pre- preservation of... Um, civil liberties, ending slavery, right? So, you know, he's he's probably much more, um, you know, a little bit more Hamiltonian probably than Jeffersonian. Um, but he was out on the edge in, in um, you know, beginning to push push things out from a, from a liberal perspective. And then you've got uh, Rousseau, whose biggest work uh, was the social constra- contract, right? Basically saying... That thing I didn't sign... Okay. <laughs> However, the, the the basis of that is that all people are sovereign, right? Okay. You, you are individually sovereign, and you, through that monarchs, you know, you, you, he argued against specifically the divine right of monarchs because 
that power must come from the sovereign people, right? Right. So, um, you know, we, we've taken it for a step further since that time, right? But just saying, hey, there's a social contract that exists. Was was Rousseau the one that they dug up and put in uh, the the French cathedral that they basically renamed the Temple of Reason? Uh, that is possible i mean they're they're I forget which one it gets really yeah I'd, we'd have to look that up yeah. because um various proponent you know the um the jacobins versus the some of the you know the like lafayette inspired early revolutionaries in france versus you know they all kind of had their own uh views on some of these these authors that so all of them kind of inspired the initial revolution and then some of them were like fiercely turned against like right. quickly within the matter of like two years like that yeah they were evil well Tom, thomas thomas right. Paine, when he was in france was like i've got to get out of here <laughs> like oh, because yeah. be, you just one wrong move and you were well he was jailed yeah you were yeah. thrown in jail and then and as was lafayette right <laughs> um and Voltaire fits into that. Voltaire was as well. just a voluminous writer, right? And and you know less specifically about any particular work that he contributed to political discourse, but you know he was the epitome of the French Enlightenment. Um, big advocacy of freedom of religion, freedom of uh, freedom of speech, very satirical and and critical of the church, in you know in a big way. Right. right and and so and which largely represented power especially in catholic france so yeah um a lot of this is me remembering things and then asking matt if it's true uh but the french revolution was disconnected from religion more than than the scottish enlightenment oh absolutely yeah it was and it was much more religion is let's turn away from religion and focus solely on reason whereas the the scottish uh enlightenment was mostly about the individual and reforming government power yeah and, 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 and i don't know i don't know the scottish enlightenment as well but you know i have recently done some listening and studying on the french revolution and, and yeah there was you know there was at point at points in the french revolution a you know a very sharp anti-church component of it to the point of you know clergy being you know, imprisoned or executed, and you know, through like the t- the terror of Robespierre, etc. Hence, renaming the temple, uh, the it, the Temple of Reason. Yeah. Um, you know, and Adam Smith fits within that Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, Adam Smith wrote the He's English, of, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all the same thing. <laughs> uh, the, the, but that's, that that that's like that, the wor- that was published at the around the same time. I think right. 1776, in fact, if I remember correctly. Um, so, um, you know, that provides a major from an economic perspective, which, you know, most of what we've been talking about from the enlightenment, the individual, uh, you know, rights and liberties, right. Kind of speaks to the, the, uh, the social side of the, uh, you know, kind of the political scale, if you will, we haven't talked a lot about the economic scale, you know, so Smith, Smith's contribution in the, in the wealth of nations was, you know, one of the first major economic works that, um, you know, kind of fueled classical liberalism. Adam Smith was Scottish, by the way. Scottish, was, there you go. Yes. Not English, okay. Uh, I should have just said British or among something. Among Scottish <laughs> thinkers and scientists of the period were Francis Hutchinson, David Hume, uh, Hume, Ad- yeah. Hume Adam Smith, Douglas, uh, Douglin Stewart, Thomas Reed, Robert Burns, Adam Ferguson, John Flay- Flaypair? Playfair, excuse me, uh, and James Hutton. So, um, yeah, that that's... I th- I, 
I knew I wasn't wrong. How dare you, sir? Uh, so then we go on. French, though. <laughs> I know. So then in the 19th century, uh, John Stuart Mill and On Liberty was uh, an important work. Yeah, I mean, On Liberty is, um, you know, really considered, again, one of those seminal documents, right? So I've got, you know, one one bit here, you know, if the action would so great, you know, basically saying that government should be limited uh, to only perform the the things that cannot, you know, that explicitly cannot be better done by the individuals, right? right? Um, and, you know, that's all obviously open to some interpretation, right? But he, he put forth, um, you know, a, a quite a large treatise in, in that regard, right? Kind of trying to argue and set up exactly why the individual liberty needs to trump Trump government yeah. power, state power, right? Um, at that same time, right around that same time, this is now mid 1800s. Um, Bastat and the law, uh, you know, out of France now, um, is another influential, you know, very influential work around, you know, what the nature of the law is, like what fundamentally is the law, what is the state, right, and and how it is essentially, it's you know, it's power, it's um, you know, if you're if you wield the law, then you know that that ends and that's the monopoly on force basically right, right? so um big big in the in the libertarian circles um going back to john stuart mill he was i would say he was the first libertarian autist uh, <laughs> <laughs> like his childhood was rough man his his father was very hardcore he had to, he learned greek by 3 uh, he, yeah, at the age of eight, he had read Aesop's Fables, uh, and 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 wrote, written, and had read all of Herodotus. Wow! <laughs> which, like he was just his dad was fanatical about him learning and and being um, uh, an intellectual and part of the intellectual service uh, service. He uh, he's got a fascinating history, but just an incredibly brilliant person with a very broken life. Mm-hmm. But and out, he was not allowed to play with anyone his own age. He was completely isolated as a child, and he was given books to read. There you and go. So he was just very awkward, but uh, very interesting guy. If you if you learn who about would, who would have thought that would happen? Yeah, <laughs> wow! You don't let your child socialize, and then it becomes a, a reclusive shut in at the end of his life. No way. <laughs> um, Jean Baptiste is someone that I have heard of, but I have no idea but, what he did. Yeah, an, an economist. Um, you know, again, there's not a, the one work here. The treatise on political political economy is cited as as being you know somewhat fundamental, but you know, there's not one great insight that I would necessarily pull out of that. But a, another later Frenchman in the, in the 19th century, and you know, much more on the economic side of you know free trade and you know competition, lifting restraints on business and and such like that. So, so I I think the the key at this point in history, right, as we move into the mid 1800s is in the United States, more or less, you know, kind of in this European definite Western definition of, of the political system, the U S is still like liberal almost across the board. Right. Right. Um, you know, there, there's not, you know, you, you can talk about, you know, Lincoln using power or what Henry Clay wanted to do with the American system and things like that. But at the end of the day, there's still, pretty liberal right your average person living in the indiana territory or the state of <laughs> the state of new england or the state of new england yeah. the state of north carolina i meant to say right. like they don't have a lot of contact with government 
It's very right. local government right. at this point. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's not, you know, a, a, you know, let's, let's, let's institute a monarchy in the United States right. Right, or anything like that. Right. So, um, you know, obviously the biggest, the biggest, uh, pull, push and pull in the U.S. at that time is, you know, slavery. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So, um, in Europe, however, you, you have a series of, you know, you know, the, king is abdicates and is overthrown and there's a revolution oh now the king's reinstated and there's this war and that and you know all this and and um so there's very much a a left and a right that that retains throughout the you know throughout the early 19th century in um in mainland europe and well and in england uh so throughout europe what we what we get to a point though is is now the industrial revolution starts starts right. to happen right and and economies have begun to develop um you know beyond you know the feudal system much well, more th- beyond the feudal system i think it's important at this point to stop and thank capitalism because yeah. capitalism gets blamed for so much but if if you look at this period and all the stuff that we've been talking about you know it, it is a frequent critique of the american system that you know we had slavery and it's this black eye um, well, all of human history had slavery. I mean, there were certainly societies that didn't have slavery, but by and large, you know, you look at the Roman system, it was powered on the back of slaves. Yep. And, you know, the Egyptian Empire, the uh, Babylonians, all, like, you read the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, slavery just isn't, it's not even like, there's not even a wrestling with it, it's just a, it's a social norm, like, it's that's how it is. Yeah. Like, we were slaves, yeah, it's just sort of how it is. And so what's remarkable about this flourishing of individualism over this period of two to three hundred years is that it completely ends slavery in in all of the West. And so it is important to note that we had a system at the founding of this country, for instance, that was built on the back of slavery, as as it had been for most of human history, and then it flips to... The idea that people can exchange their labor for, for money, yeah. Instead of your labor is completely owned by a slave owner, you now are a worker who is employed by someone, and you can sell your labor to different people. Mm-hmm. You know, before this period, you were owned by someone and gave all of your labor over to some person. You were an indentured servant. You were a part of a collective that worked for a slave master or you Peasant, were just a surf right just trying to exist <laughs> and yeah. so what you end up happening in the industrial revolution is is the breakaway of the idea of your labor being owned by someone else and you owning your labor and selling that in exchange for money or for goods and that ends up being a rapid increase and it leads to the industrial revolution and capitalism is what ultimately makes it financially workable for slaves to be free for us to exist in a in a small apartment in southport where i have exchanged my goods in ex, in exchange uh, for a microphone and a mic stand and so the industrial revolution is just a rapid expansion again it's another one of those rapid expansions like the printing press era where everything changes very quickly yeah but it's not done in a correct way. Like I would look at social media and say, okay, this is a good example of a new technology that rapidly expands. No, there, there's, you can say that the Zuckerbergs of the world, for instance, are 
you know, the the heavy hand, the puppet, figuring out how to do all this. But really, the market and people as a whole, out of spontaneous order, have built this little ecosystem of social media, for instance, oh, yeah. and the web. Well, there's fundamental structural issues with social media and its effect on society. We're all starting to talk about that now. And so things develop very rapidly without us really knowing it. We just kind of go along to get along and try it out, and then we end up miserable because some asshole's calling us a weak person on Facebook every day. <laughs> that I'm bitter, Matt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so the Industrial Revolution is another one of those rapid expansions in human liberty in a very quick, short amount of time. Yeah, well, not just, I mean, human liberty, but it, it changes the structure of society in a, in a massive way, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the growth of, of urban areas, the city, you know, uh, factory jobs, um, you know, uh, all of this begins to, to happen, which this is where now, you know, I think sets us up for this, you know, the split in liberalism, Right from classical liberalism to I think modern liberalism, uh, uh, it, and and it also coincides with the the you know true anarchist schools of thought that also serve as um, you know uh, to a degree foundational elements of of modern libertarianism and and and, and anarch, anarchism right right so uh, and a lot of that's. You know, I think based on you know the you know the class struggle, right? I mm-hmm. mean, so it's be you know the you've you've gone through this enlightenment period, you you you've changed structures at the top. You realize, man, a lot of these people at the bottom are still not very well off. You know, whose fault is that? <laughs> right. What do we need to do to change that? And and that's where new thinking around. You know, uh, should we have a stateless society? Should we just completely eradicate the the uh, aristocrats and the and the former nobility? Do we need to destroy capitalism? Because is that the thing that's causing all this? Um, how do we help these people through social policy? Does what role does the state have in this? This is where all these debates, um, you know, I think really accelerate from kind of eighteen sixty, eighteen seventy through. You know, uh, you know. I mean, we still deal with it today, but I think that the turning of that up until like 1910-ish, uh, pre-World War One, right? Yeah, this is also a time when you have like the Republican progressives in Teddy Roosevelt, later Robert to, La Follette, right? Or then, then to be adopted by Woodrow Wilson, and then FDR, and then LBJ, and Barack Obama, and you have the the introduction of positive rights i mean it always kind of existed but it really takes on a new form in democratic societies where the government what does if the if the people exist uh if the government represents the people then it ought to take care of the people especially the least of and so what what can the government do to then begin to help the disadvantaged citizens of uh, of it, you know, you talk about the, in the show notes here the Liberal Party of the UK implementing in the early 1900s the first social welfare state. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the you you also have a an expansion of the voting franchise that's also happening through this period of time as as a um, uh, as a tenant of individualism. No. What does that mean? Uh, uh, letting more people vote. <laughs> like like who? Like uh, not just rich white people. Right, I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's a good it, thing. It it depends all across the board, right? But I mean, you you go from um, 
you know, in most of these places from, you know, only, you know, the elites truly voting or, or various structures like that to, you know, wider, uh, you know, wider distribution of who can vote, right? right? Including now uh, not just, you know, all white males, but now in some places females and, you know, former slaves and black people and, you know, whatever, you know, group has been, um, you know, often on the edges of power are increasingly being brought in to have a seat at the table through liberal ideals, right? right? But what this creates then or created then, uh, well, I'd say creates still, is is then the pressure politically to, uh, you know, do things for these new voters. <laughs> yeah, the the problem is that, he, I don't know, the more I think through this and read and, and, like, look at the relationship of individuals to each other and the development of these different governments and how we got here, it's all tribal structures. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that we've ever really gotten away from that tribal nature that we were all existing in, you know, even 500 years ago, but 3,000 years ago. We've just now taken the tribal structure and applied it to 360 million people, and that's yeah. that's untenable. Right. And that's why libertarianism is the only right option, is because it allows you then to build your own tribe, and you, you, you basically agree whether or not you want to be a part of this group, and then that is the, that is the structure. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't have the inherent conflict between these different groups like we do with modern government, where we, we still have that nativist instinct to get on Facebook and fight with somebody who is a Trump supporter or is not a Trump supporter or a liberal or an, uh, we got to own this lib here, <laughs> you know, because we are using the force of government really to inflict our ideologies on each other. But I don't think it's even that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah, think it's that well I thought it's out. More tribal. Than, it's yeah. literally like you bad. You disagree with me on immigration. Right. <laughs> like, right. And so that's kind of, why I, I haven't fully fleshed this out yet, but that really to me is why we are having such a difficult time in America is because, because we have moved, we have forced up the re- relationship with each other and our leadership to such a high level that we can't control it anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, do I, does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I think, social theory, anthropological theory around, you know, what, what's a manageable group size and for self-governing and, and um, you know, how that evolved into, you know, where we got in the very beginning of this conversation with, you know, the, the leader of the tribe, right? And eventually the king and things like that, right? So um, we are far beyond the population to manage that. But I think, as you also noted earlier, you know, we're in a unique time technologically where I think we have we have tools that we never had before that can ease some of those things that can right. facilitate um, you know collaboration and um, you know the blending of social groups hopefully successfully <laughs> right well, and uh, I think and we're struggling a, through that right now there's right? a huge frustration because our leaders don't listen to us. Nobody's listening to us. We're just like it's just like I'm I'm saying things, but you're not hearing me. And I, I don't know. I think it's the structure that we have is not working. Um 
Would you mind, as I set this up, letting get Dakota, the door? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, get the door. Uh, it's it's locked. So uh, obviously, the progressive era of the early 1900s in the United States introduces the cancer of progressivism, where essentially the government becomes an institute of positive rights that starts to change thing, and uh, conservative uh, conservatism did, starts to adopt elements of classical liberalism and some of those factors. Uh, and it starts to take on more of the protector of the individual. Uh, how how did that happen? How did conservatism come to mean classical liberalism or using the government to protect certain institutions like religious liberty? I, I think a, I think uh, I think a lot of it came from the the economic side of the equation. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the the early twentieth early to mid 20th century thinkers who began to kind of readopt the classical liberal label, right? They were economists um, or, or uh, politicians uh, or thinkers who, who talked about how free markets uh, and laissez-faire systems of, of economics are, um, you know, where, where the boat is being missed, right? right? By, by quote, the left, at this point, right. right, and so, um, you know, your your Hayek's and your Mises's and your Taft's and your Goldwaters and such begin to um, tap into the uh, foundation of classical liberalism and try to adopt some of that into the right, right. You know, all right. Well, that seems to be a pretty fair summation. That gets us up to the current era. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. We will leave it there. Again, we would love your feedback. Uh, if there's anything that uh, you feel we missed, then please feel free. Like, hey, this guy's really important. Like, you forgot Hume, and you forgot, uh, you know, uh, Shecky Spooner, Lysander Spooner, Lysander, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, let us know. We'd love to love to hear it. So, all right. Thanks for joining us on this bonus episode, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Meaning like 10 minutes. <laughs>